Good morning. And thank you, Megan, for reading. I always hate it when I'm assigned a reading and there's a list of names from a different century. But she killed that, so that was awesome. Let's take a moment. We're going to pray together, and then uh, we'll look at the text. Father, we'd like to thank you that we can gather here to listen for your voice. And uh, we're mindful today, Father, that we live in a very divided world. And not only divided, but seems to be drifting further apart. People in diverse camps and tribes, ideologies. And you are about these breaking down of walls and inviting people into one vast family. So would you speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit today toward that end? Give us ears to hear, hearts to respond. We pray in Christ's name, amen. One of my favorite books uh, from many years ago, a book on leadership, is entitled Seven Habits for Highly Effective People. Has anyone in the room heard of it or read it? Many of you have. You're in management. You probably have read it in leadership. And one of my favorite quotes within that book is this. Between stimulus and response, there is space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in our proper response lies our growth and freedom. Let me explain what, I, what, what this quote means. For example, you walk into your boss's office. You've worked on a project you're fully expected to hear, job well done, you're amazing, a raise, a promotion, and instead, you get this. Here's 10 things I hate about this project. Go back and do it over again. That's the stimulus. Now, you have to receive that. There's this gap, and now you're going to respond in some way. Or you walk in the door, coming home, and your spouse has discovered your browser history or your credit card charges in Las Vegas or something like that, and there's a confrontation, and that's the stimulus, and now there's a moment, and you have to respond. And then again, here's what Covey says in the book, Seven Habits. He says, in our proper response lies our growth and freedom. But let's be clear, there are many improper responses as well, right? When we're confronted, we can ignore the stimulus. I did that as a kid quite often. When my parents would confront me, I'd smile, nod, and then go away completely unchanged, right? We can, we can shoot the messenger. We can kind of say, oh, uh, I would receive that, but you're such a terrible person that I don't have to listen to you, right? We do that in various forms. We can reject the stimulus completely at the point of violence if we feel strongly enough about it. That's what happens in the subsequent chapter, Acts 7, when Stephen articulates in a sermon that God is doing a new thing and the leaders literally cover their ears, run Stephen out of the temple and they pick up rocks and they throw rocks at him and kill him, rejecting, rejecting the stimulus. That was their response. Or we can listen to the Holy Spirit when we receive a stimulus. We can listen, allow the wind of the Holy Spirit to guide us to our next steps. That's the only proper response. Not only in this text, but in every situation in life, right? When we're confronted with a truth that we would prefer not to hear, what do we do? It's kind of what's on the table here in our time together this morning. And in this series, I would argue that we've encountered weeks of stimulus regarding matters of racial reconciliation and justice, and more stimulus awaits beyond this series because we live in a world 
of walls and polarization and tribalism. And, and so we will have conversations and we'll process the news of suffering and injustice as we continue to learn about our world. And my hope is that we'll continue to grow in how we see and listen to and serve and love the other. And for a roadmap in responding properly to um, disconcerting or disruptive stimulus, that roadmap is for us here in Acts chapter 6, it's seen in three acts. Stimulus, the space, and response, right? Those three things. But before we get to that, I want to give you the context here of Acts chapter 6. As you know, in the book of Acts, people are moving into this story of hope that God is writing in the world as people are, are, are turning toward Christ as the source of hope. And this is more than a transaction, kind of a come forward, get baptized. Now you got your ticket punch, you're going to heaven you know, good luck. It's more than that. What's happening here is the foundational context of the gospel is that God is creating a brand new family. And in order to create that family, people will come into that family from every race, every nation, every tribe, you know, no longer Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, rich nor poor. There's this new, very diverse community. And we see this all through the early chapters of Acts, right? In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed as part of Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 2, people are speaking in multiple languages and hearing in their own language the gospel, a testimony that God is doing a new thing here, right? By chapter 6, this new movement has become a threat to the religious establishment. So apostles have been first threatened, then arrested, and then beaten, and then released, and then upon release, they were forbidden to preach, but they continued to preach anyway. And, and then the, the, the message that they were preaching was earth-shattering, life-changing. So there's this movement. It's new. People are moving from here to here. There's now a group of people in authority, and they're kind of shepherding this movement and overseeing this movement. But here, this is very important. The lives of those in the proclaiming community, the new community here, particularly those in authority, are continuing to be challenged and transformed. Hear me? The leaders are still growing and learning. If we don't have that, we're toast. I don't even know if that's a saying, but that's my saying. If we don't, if, like if we who lead aren't humble enough to receive the hard word, all transformation stops. So that's what's on the table here in Acts chapter 6. And so what we see is a stimulus, a space, and a response. Let's look at the stimulus. It's in chapter 6, verse 1. So let me read that. At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So now there are three things here defining the stimulus, right? There's, there's a, a situation, and then there's, there's a complaint, and then I'm going to observe the complaint is articulated on behalf of the oppressed minority by members of the minority party. I want to unpack those three things under this, under this idea of stimulus. So first of all, there's a complaint. There's a situation, Right? The Jewish system over here in the old religion had a provision for distribution of food, you can read about it in the Old Testament, for widows. And it was likely true that those who left the Jewish faith were cut off from that 
provision within Judaism, right? I'm in a new community. I've, I've moved membership, to use our morning illustration. And so now there's a new community committed to my well-being, right? So now there's a new community committed to my well-being. But it, within this community, there are w- widows who in their previous communities spoke Greek and had come into Judaism. They were Greek-speaking, so not Jewish blood, Greek-speaking came into Judaism. Now, they've moved out. This new movement, watch this, this new movement, it's still a little bit unclear on the part of many within it. Is this a whole new thing, or is this just the fulfillment of Judaism? Does that make sense? Is this just a natural evolution of Judaism, or is it a whole new thing? That's a question on the table, basically. And so now... Here's these Greek-speaking widows. They come into the new community, and in this new community, the Jewish widows are receiving provision, material provision and food, and subsidies in a, in a sense, and the Gentile widows are not. So now, we're going to stop right there and make an observation. We're not told, we can assume, but we're not told the motive of the oversight. Is it oversight... Or is it, ah, this will show them, right? Do you understand? Like, we're not told. And I find it valuable that we're not told, and here's why. If you've ever experienced oversight and neglect, like if you have felt unseen, you know on the front end, it doesn't matter the motive of the people who don't see you, it feels the same, right? When, like, when, if you walk into a party, and there's a group here and a group here, and every group you approach begins to laugh and kind of moves away from you physically, maybe it's just timing, and it was a joke. But you don't know that. All you know is I come toward you, and you turn away. And then I came toward you, and you turned away. It feels the same no matter the motive. So the bottom line here is the motive. The bottom line is they are not seen, right? Sometimes when we look at history, people are kind of actively marginalized. Think KKK. Think Nazis. Think Putin versus uh, Ukraine. Think Hutus vis-a-vis Tutsis in Rwanda. But also throughout history, people are quote-unquote not seen through passive neglect. And this happens... When I have, I in authority have a sphere of influence, and within that sphere, there's a group of people, and I don't see them. Are you with me? Like, I, they're under my care, but I'm not noticing. And that's this situation, right? Now, why is this important? Because it has too often been the posture regarding racism lived out in the church that the church, while the church is granted by God, you know, power and authority to address race. For decades, the church has not been doing that. Let me give you an example. Uh, There's a group called the National Association of Evangelicals, and they uh, created a racial justice and reconciliation collaborative, the first ever in their history, last April, April of 2022. They appointed a new leader, they, they made some goals, and now they're working on addressing racial justice reconciliation in a collaborative fashion, and though it was April 2022 when they began to address race, the organization was formed in 1942. So 80 years, 
Not a, not a step, not a word, not an initiative regarding race. And the NAE, the National Association of Evangelicals, is predominantly white, certainly has a sphere of influence to address racism and gun violence and climate change and consumerism and nationalism and individualism. And often it's been the case that the church has been silent on these things because though within our sphere of authority and influence, we've been blind to the issues. So then I ask the question, why are we blind? Here's the answer, bad theology. And what do I mean by that? I mean, if you look back at church history for the last 80 years, most of which is my lifetime, right? I can say to you that evangelical Christianity spheres of concerns come and go. Like take, take the long view and you go, oh, there's always a quote unquote hot topic, like a debate du jour. Like today's thing is this. What do I mean by that? Well, in my lifetime, early on in the 60s, the big concern was about when Christ was going to return and rapture us out of here, right? And so there were books about this, and this was, this was the thing. And then, you know, uh, as a corollary to that, many debates about who is the Antichrist who's going to usher in this world reign of evil. And in my lifetime, the Antichrist has been uh, Brezhnev, Nixon, Gorbachev, Clinton, and three popes, right? So, like, I've heard this, and this was the big thing that was vexing all of us. And then, you know, cable TV came around, and suddenly there are new Christian leaders, and so we became concerned about expanding our sphere of influence via cable TV, and very quickly became concerned about the moral and financial failings of the spiritual leaders on cable TV. And then we were concerned about divorced people and losing your salvation and speaking in tongues and saving life in the womb and voting properly and a dozen other things for decades, issue, 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 but what wasn't addressed? Uh, high rates of poverty and crime and incarceration and violence in community of color. Not addressed. Uh, or repairing relationships with Jap Japanese Americans after World War II. Not addressed. Or the Duwamish tribe and its status as a tribe, let alone its rights as American citizens. Or other Native Americans whose abuses occurred in, in boarding schools. Not addressed. Not addressed. These issues never rose to the top. We were doing good things, good and important things, some things good, some things trivial, but these matters, these particular matters, though they were within our sphere of influence, were not in our sphere of concern. We didn't care. And so, that's the way it is in Acts 6. Church is growing, people are coming to Christ, we gotta teach, we gotta go house to house, we gotta break bread, we gotta make sure that everybody's cared for, but overlooked in that movement <clears throat> was a particular group of Greek-speaking widows, nobody saw them. And so, the stimulus begins with murmuring. Look at verse one again. The disciples were increasing in number and then a complaint arose. Or another translation, murmuring arose. Now this word is a really cool Greek word. Because it really literally means a secret murmuring. In other words, when, when the complaint began, it wasn't uh, someone speaking truth to power. It was a whispering campaign. Do you understand? And, you know, I've always said that the problem is never the meeting. The problem is always the meeting after the meeting. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean by that? There's a meeting, and in the meeting, 
you know, we all, you know, we raise the company flag and we're all good and it's all, everything's fine, you know. And then when the meeting's over, is there's the hallway and there's the water fountain. And there's a coffee thing over here. And it's there that you, if you really want to know how your company's doing, go to the water cooler, not the platform. Because at the water cooler is where you hear, oh yeah, you know, that boss, blah, 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 whatever. So that's kind of what's going on here. And for people who have an aversion to conflict, it's very important to stop right here and make an observation. Watch, it's very important. Conflict in the early church, vital part of its growth and transformation. Vital. Without the conflict, we'd still be worshiping on Saturday, keeping most of the Old Testament uh, Levitical law, baking pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and I wouldn't have had bacon for breakfast, Right? Like without the murmuring, Christianity would have remained forever culturally bound by, by what it means to be Jewish. That's what would have happened. But because someone murmured, movement happened. So part of what makes the good news good news is precisely that it's not culturally bound, racially bound, economically bound, gender bound. In fact, a central tenet of the gospel that was declared both by the angels at Jesus' birth, by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians, summarized again in John the Apostle's vision and Revelation, a central tenet is this. I bring you good news of great joy for who? Anyone know? All people, all people. And that means good news will not destroy culture, but find expressions within cultures and transform cultures. In other words, the gospel is culturally malleable. There's a place for everybody at the table. And it also means that no single culture is definitive. But that's not happening in the case before us. People are moving into something that is predominantly bound by, by, by Judaism. And in this case, it's a good and necessary thing to awaken the church to its blind spot. And the way that it will be awakened, murmuring. Right? So I'm just going to say here, for, for if you're in the room and you're, and you're like, I don't like conflict, I, 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 just hear me. It's, it's in the wake of healthy conflict, which this is, as we'll see. It's in the wake of healthy conflict that transformation comes. And often, healthy conflict necessitates speaking truth to power, as we'll see. So then, we're still under this kind of first observation, right, of the situation I understand now the complaint is articulated on behalf of the minority group by the minority group. Uh, uh, so women in first century generally only spoke one language. Uh, and so the reality was that a new family was being created. It's this one over here in which Greek-speaking women who had been practicing Judaism were outside. They were outside culturally, but they were also outside linguistically. And the fruit of this was marginalization for these women. But there were other Greek speakers in this new community. They're called Hellenists. Other Greek speakers, and they weren't widows. So the ones who are not widows see the widows, and the ones who see the widows are not in power. Because the ones in power are the original apostles who were with Jesus who came out of Judaism. So I see these people... These people in power don't see these people. So I, even though I don't have authority, I'm speaking truth to power. 
Are you with me so far? That's what happened. And in a world of inequities, where the dominant religion among people of power is Christianity, it would have been easy for these people who saw the injustice, it would have been easy for them to say this, hey, you know what? We got to submit to authorities. Period. Don't question authorities. In fact, we can even use the Bible to justify that. Hebrews 13, 17. Submit to your rulers and those who are in authority over you. Period. End of sentence. Hard stop. Hear me. If you take that as law, you're missing the point. It's a principle. But there was always a place for speaking truth to power. And if you don't believe me, just look at Peter in Acts 4.18. 4, Peter walks into the temple, and the authorities in the temple say, we forbid you to talk about Jesus within these walls. And what does Peter say? He says, hey, you know what? I know you have authority here, but ultimately, ultimately, while I will submit to your authority, as long as it doesn't conflict with God's authority, ultimately, my authority is to God, and so if it's right for me to rather obey you than God, you decide, as for me, I'm going to obey God. And that means I will speak truth to power. And I will challenge people in authority. So let's just note here, all of us in the room, there's a time to speak truth to power. Gandhi did it. Bonhoeffer did it. Rosa Parks did it. Sophie Scholl did it. MLK did it. John Perkins did it. Clarence Jordan did it. Hear me. Speaking truth to power may be divisive, but a superficial peace is never the vision. If you're in power, receiving truth spoken to you may result in loss of some of your power, <laughs> but preserving power is never the vision. Speaking truth to power may be hard, but a life of ease is not the vision. The vision is that God is creating a new community a new family of sons and daughters that testify not just with words but with power that God is breaking down every dividing wall and ushering in shalom. So when it comes time to speak, speak. And when it's time to receive the hard word, if you're a person in authority here, when it's time to receive the hard word, receive the hard word. Which brings us to the next stage, right? Between stimulus and response, there's this space, right? And the beauty of this story is when truth is spoken to power, the people in power receive it. Let me just note here. People in power in this story are the apostles, right? And I would just say it's an understatement to say that people with power are tempted to insulate themselves from receiving correction. That's an understatement. All of us in the room, to the extent that we have power, are tempted at times in our lives to use the power that we have as a means of not listening. That, does that make sense? How many have ever been challenged by your kids and the challenge is legitimate, but you're too tired to argue and you want things to be the way they are. You want to preserve the status quo. And so here's your rationale for your position because I'm the parent, that's why. That is a way of, in a sense, saying I am insulated from your corrective authority. 
you cannot speak truth to power because when you try, I'm just going to play my power card, right? And, you know, as we grow older, the same thing happens because I'm the boss. That's why. Because we're, the, here's the church, because we're the elders. That's why. Because I'm called by God. That's why. Hear me. This is sin. Like, if you're in power, you have to be accessible. I, I shudder when I look back on the earliest days of my marriage my wife and I would get into, you know, little thing, whatever you want to call it, a little conflict stuff. And how sick is this that the seminary student then appeals to the Bible and says, well, here's why, here, what I, this is how we use money. God has spoken, right? And that's supposed to silence all arguments. Well, with my wife, it didn't silence all arguments ever. <laughs> she would retort and then the, here's a nuclear option. Well, listen, I know the Greek. And in the Greek, it says it this way. Boom. End of argument, right? And then what I learned early in marriage is when you win that way, you actually lose, right? So that, that like appealing to I'm the anointed one is really toxic. And therefore, let's just make this observation. The inability to receive a corrective word is not a mark of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's actually the way of Cain. It goes all the way back in the Bible. It's a thread running through the whole Bible of people who were always above correction. Always. Starts with Cain. You go on through. You see uh, different kings. King Saul comes to mind. I mean, every time he was confronted, he justified. Then there were numerous kings of Israel and Judah who not only didn't receive the hard word, but actively sought to silence the truth tellers who usually were the prophets. Then there's these first century religious leaders um, who when they see Jesus raise a man from the dead decide that the only possible course of action to preserve their power was to kill Jesus. And then, you know, this is followed by a long line of prophetic voices speaking truth to power throughout church history. People are jailed, beaten, maligned, killed. And if we started naming politicians and dictators and business leaders, who refuse to receive a corrective word, we'd be here all day. Because the more power you have, the more you insulate yourself from transformation correction. It's just super dangerous. So we want to name it here, power seductive, and we want to name this as well, none of us are above it. So it's telling to me here, and beautiful, that the church leaders listen when the hard word is spoken and, and respond. And I want to take a moment here and affirm uh, my successor at Bethany Community Church as senior pastor, Scott's son, because on this particular issue, Scott has been listening and at the forefront of helping to lead our church to a place of response. We were in a, a lead pastor meeting seven years ago, you know, uh, it was a retreat and we were somewhere and there was a swimming pool and we had a barbecue and it was evening and we'd done all the hard work for the day and we were tired and we're just sitting around in the evening and then somebody's phone blips and we see that there's been an outbreak of violence and a police killing and a racial riot in a city in America and we turned the TV on and it just, it, it hit all of us forcefully. Bam! The church is silent on this, this, this issue of racial disparity and injustice and the increasing violence, and, and we've been silent. 
And quite easily, I will tell you, quite easily, it's easy to go home from a retreat and it kind of slips away. Under Scott's leadership, it hasn't slipped away. We're here right now doing this because someone is listening. Thanks be to God. So, so when you receive the corrective word, when we, the church, receive the corrective word, A, listen. Don't shoot the messenger. Don't get defensive. Listen. Because as soon as you get defensive, without listening, what you're really trying to do is preserve a status quo. And that's the death blow to transformation. In the spring of 1963, Martin Luther King had been arrested while leading supporters of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in a nonviolent campaign of demonstration against segregation. And then uh, he was arrested and thrown in jail for, for this nonviolent uh, march. And local white ministers uh, were party to his arrest and imprisonment. And so then uh, MLK wrote a letter now famous, entitled Letter from a Birmingham Jail. It was published in the national press along with shocking images of police brutality against protesters in Birmingham. And this helped build widespread support for civil rights. And the widespread support for civil rights was threatening to some people in power. So on September 15th, at 11 a.m., the 16th Avenue Church in Birmingham, an all-black church, uh, a bomb went off, which resulted in the death of four girls, two age 11, two age 14, the injury of 20 others, and that was the third bombing in 11 days after a federal court, in response to uh, MLK's letter, had mandated a movement toward integration in, in, in uh, Birmingham. In other words, uh, this stimulation left a space, but the response in this case was the wrong response. People in power said, we will not move. Boom. And then they kind of doubled down. This is why Jesus says over and over again, he, Jesus says this, he who has ears, what? Let him hear. Eugene Peterson translates that this way in his message transliteration of the Bible. Jesus would speak a parable, then he says this. He would, Jesus would pause and he'd say, are you listening? Really listening? This is no good to come, take notes, and say, well, that was rubbish. What time did the Seahawks start? Listen, we're here worshiping, gathering, singing, praying, welcoming new members. Why? Because we are to model lifelong transformation. And that means we're open to the hard word. That means we're open to differing views. It's, it means we're open to dissent. It means we listen. It means our ears are bigger than our mouths. And what I love here is when we come to this as a conclusion, in this instance, in Acts, there's stimulus, a complaint, there's a space, and then there's a response. And we see the response in verses two and three. So the 12, some of the congregation of disciples and said, shut up, never confront authority again. No. They said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God uh, in order to serve tables. Therefore, so you select from among you seven men full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit whom you may put in charge of this. So let's just, as we wrap this up here, 
Let's just look at this. First of all, there's a legitimizing of the complaint. We hear you. That in itself goes light years toward healing relationships because the proposal carries, like just hearing carries with it seeds of hope and reconciliation because it's precisely the opposite of doubling down and rejecting the complaint as unjust or rejecting the ones bringing the complaint as whiners. Instead, they're, they're receiving the complaint, A. But it's more than we hear you, it's we hear you <clears throat> And here's our proposed plan to rectify the situation. And it's more than just, here's our plan. Instead, what do they do? Well, the names of those chosen indicate that most of the ones charged with the distribution of food among the Greek-speaking widows were themselves Greek. In other words, you come to me with a complaint. A, I don't shut you down. B, I don't get defensive. C, I don't shoot the messenger. Instead, not only do I say, I hear you, but I say, here's some power, you solve it. It's beautiful. And so now you have a group of Greek-speaking uh, Christians ministering to widows who are Greek-speaking. We're giving you power so that you can solve the problem. This isn't a handout. This is empowering. This is Rwanda. It's what we do in Rwanda with uh, World Relief. This is what we do in Nicaragua with uh, um, Agros. This is what we do uh, right here on Aurora with Aurora Commons. Everywhere, people are empowered to bring about healing and justice and prosperity. And watch this. The choosing wasn't based solely on ethnicity. It was this. Choose people full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit. Why? Because race and injustice and inequity is always tricky. <laughs> in other words, you, you don't solve racial inequity with a chainsaw, like with a, with a policy. People don't need a policy. People need a mentor. People need a relationship. Because we don't, we don't know what this particular human needs to move from oppressed to free, from surviving to thriving. We, we don't know. Sometimes you speak the corrective word. Sometimes you receive the corrective word. Sometimes you confront. Sometimes you confess. Sometimes you give money. Sometimes you don't. In other words, there's a time. Time to speak, time to be silent. Time to give, time to withhold. Time to confront, time to confess. Here's the problem. You don't know what time it is. And I don't either. And no single policy will ever solve that. We need people on the streets serving full of what? Wisdom and the Holy Spirit. Without that, hopeless. With that, what happens? Here's what happens. The word of God kept spreading. The number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And if you look at the first two centuries of the church, this is what you see. Growing and growing and growing, particularly in urban settings just like this one. Why? Because the church had a reputation of empowering people on the margins and bringing them into a new family, bringing healing and hope and justice and reconciliation and mercy and forgiveness and wholeness. That's their story. It's to be our story too. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're so mindful that we live in a deeply divided time where people don't view the other as someone just with a different view, but as the enemy. And to the extent that any of us in your family fall into that, Father, we want to be free of that. 
and we want you to heal us. And we want to pray over us collectively as a community today, Father, asking that we would be marked collectively as people who break down dividing walls, as people who love the other, as people who extend out a reach of compassion and justice and empowerment to those on the margins, to those unjustly treated, in order that the testimony of your life and the work that you do would be made real in and through us. And we'll give you the glory for that, praying in Christ's name. Amen. Let's worship together.